and welcome to the DWD podcast, a weekly look at progress of voluntary assisted dying in Victoria. This week, beginning Tuesday, November 14, debate resumes in the Upper House of Parliament on the voluntary assisted dying bill. The bill is entering the committee stage where the MPs debate the bill clause by clause. In total, there are 141 of those clauses, so you can expect some late nights in Parliament this week, not unlike what we had during debate in the Lower House. Some MPs have flagged that they will be seeking amendments to the bill. Most notably, West Victorian MP Simon Ramsey has said he is eager to see the timeframe for eligibility scaled back from 12 months down to six months, possibly with exemptions for those with motor neurone disease. We will have to see how that pans out during the debate as to how it will be navigated in the legislation itself. Highlights in last week's news came in the form of research done at the beginning of November by Roy Morgan Research. They released an article last week uh, that detailed the survey that they did on Australians on their thoughts on assisted dying legislation uh, and further confirmed that regardless of age, gender, which state you live in or what your political leaning may be, support for voluntary assisted dying laws is consistently high. Furthermore, Roy Morgan presents the survey taken at the beginning of November against surveys dating all the way back to the 1940s to give insight into just how consistent support for voluntary assisted dying laws and end-of-life choices and options have been in the community. The snapshot of all of that is that for the last 40 years, over 70% of Australians have supported the option of assisted dying for the terminally ill. We'll link off to the full article from Roy Morgan in the episode description. It is well worth a read. And now to our main segment. Liz Zeng is an assistant professor of medicine and sociology at the University of California, San Francisco. She specializes in palliative care, clinical medicine, sociology, and ethics. Back in 2015, Liz ran a conference in California for stakeholders in the healthcare sector to discuss what uh, concerns and challenges they were facing in implementing the End of Life Option Act that had just been passed over in California and was in its infancy in terms of implementation. She speaks really well about some of the more challenging aspects of implementing an assisted dying law, particularly around the considerations for healthcare organizations and hospitals when developing their policy around voluntary assisted dying services. So you held a conference of healthcare stakeholders in 2015 to determine Uh, What challenges and concerns there were about the implementation of California's assisted dying law? Uh, What what were the key issues raised by those who attended the conference? Um, Yes. So um, basically, um, the law went into effect um, uh, on June 9th, um, and we found out about the law being passed, I think, sometime in October. And so one of the main concerns of a lot of the people who in California was, well, we've never had any sort of laws about aid and dying. What do we do? And so we thought that there was a need for a conference that we actually pulled together in very quickly. Um, we uh, pulled it together in three months. I think the law was um, passed in October, and we had the conference in December in prepar- uh, to give people enough time to um, – 
work on the policy, their policies at their respective institutions uh, by June. And so um, this was a conference with, um, it was an invited conference with about 125 stakeholders um, in California, including um, ethicists, palliative care providers, um, hospital leaders, advocates of and against the law. Um, and we also had a special guest, uh, Susan Eggman, who was um, the person who put up the bill uh, in the California legislature. And so um, in terms of um, major concerns that we had, um, we divided the conference um, morning sessions up into uh, palliative care perspectives, ethics, um, and policy, and then the afternoon was focused on how to actually write the law, um, implement policies, um, implement a response at your institution, um, and we divided up uh, based on outpatient providers, hospices, um, hospitals, that sort of thing. Um, and then we also had small group sessions on specific issues such as education, um, issues relating to minority populations, um, that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, there were a lot of um, interesting perspectives raised, um, and a lot of the um, concerns um, also focused around some of the, the main themes of the conference. So um, we all, um, I think the um, the organizers of the conferences uh, conference recognized um, that even though the law was passed, um, it doesn't change. I mean, it doesn't obviate the fact that there are still ethical um, concerns and issues, and we wanted to make sure that we provided an ethical response. So some of the conversation um, rotated around, you know, how do we provide an ethical response? Um, how do we focus on um, both some of the nitty gritty issues, but also some of the um, the ways that aid in dying would change perspectives about palliative care, about um, medical practice, for example. Um, and actually what was quite interesting was that um, both at the conference um, as well as um, generally, there's been a very robust conversation amongst palliative care providers um, about um, how this um, changes the relationship between doctors and patients um, about palliative care, about end of dying. Um, some people thought that um, actually um, this was a really good opportunity to strengthen palliative care. Um, I think one of the ethical concerns was how do you um, how do you provide an ethical response when a lot of the people in California didn't even have um, access to good palliative care. Um, so that was one of the um, main concerns. Um, I think a more logistical concern was just, you know, how do we even implement this? There were a lot of questions just on like, well, how uh, will we allow the drug to be um, given um, to be uh, ingested in hospitals? Um, would a hospital opt in or opt out? Um, what do we do with individual opt outs? Um, how do we um, how do we dispose of the drug? How would ER people, um, emergency providers, um, handle um, patients who maybe come in um, having incomplete ingestions? I mean, there were like tons of issues that were just sort of batted around during this entire um during this entire conference. Um, we also talked about um, potential moral distress that practitioners might encounter um, and how, um, how um, hospitals and institutions could help um, individual practitioners who may be dealing with that. So, so what, I mean, that was back in 2015. Has, I mean, obviously all of those issues are going to be ongoing things that people work through in regards to their policy or regards to how, how the law is accessed and used. Um, but uh, has much changed? Has much conversation progressed? Um, yeah, so it's been interesting. Um, so we're about, uh, we're actually a year into uh, the law, and a lot of the nitty gritty things that I mentioned, uh, we've been sort of able to figure it out um, through individual uh, policies that were implemented when the law 
took place and then realizing that some things worked, something didn't, and so adjusting it. And one of the things that we realized in the conference was that this was going to be an organic process. One of the things that we actually had um, Oregon and Washington providers who were very involved with their Death with Dignity Act come down and sort of we got their lessons learned. And one of their lessons was that don't expect this to be um, something that you figure out on day one. Um, recognize that this is going to be something that you're going to have to constantly readdress, constantly um, change the policies if it's not working and that sort of thing. And so um, actually one of the interesting things that we didn't expect to be a major problem, um, but that actually ended up being something are um, sort of the individual opt-outs. So um, both institutions um, can opt out of the law um, but also individuals within institutions. So if, for example, an institution has opted in, um, an individual practitioner in that institution doesn't um, still has the ability to say that they want to opt in or opt out of prescribing this medication. And so one of the challenges is, well, let's say someone's um, provider, um, someone's physician um, is not comfortable prescribing well, what do you do? And uh, various institutions in um, California have um, had different practices and policies surrounding this. But that's, I think, become one of the, the major issues that we didn't initially anticipate being as big an issue. Uh, as in an issue for the health practitioners and institutions or for the, the public, the people? Um, so I think one of the, uh, uh, so it's for both um, patients, practitioners, and institutions, it's been problematic. Um, and I think one of the main things um, about the law is that it doesn't give patients the right to access the drug. It merely um, makes it legal for them to access the drug. And so um, when this law was passed, a lot of patients were think um, patients who were thinking about accessing um uh, hastening death medications thought, okay, well, great, now I can get the medications. However, um, maybe, for example, their primary care doctor doesn't d didn't feel comfortable prescribing it, um, and then you know, there'd be challenges trying to find another practitioner because even though some individual physicians may feel comfortable providing the drug to a patient that they've had a long-term relationship with and felt comfortable um, with that, they may not feel comfortable um, being the go-to physician for these medications, they may not feel comfortable um, having a referral and having a patient that they've never met. In and actually, the law also states that um, the attending uh, physician should be the primary doctor and has a relation should have a relationship with the patient. So, it is, so is that something that's written into the law, or is that just a sort of guideline? Um, you mean in terms of the attending physician having um, being the having a physician with a relationship and being the primary provider? Yes. Um, yeah. So I mean, it is um, part of the law, but um, you know, it's one of those things where you know how how much is that being enforced um, is, or how much one can, you know, there's a. How, how much does that actually need to mean? Does it, 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 it's, it's not, it doesn't say, the law doesn't say that you need to have had a five-year relationship or a one-year relationship yeah. with the patient. It merely says that you need to have had a relationship. So, yeah. Okay. Um, you wrote that the conference participants were concerned that groups at socioeconomic disadvantage in California uh, might disproportionately request uh, physician-assisted dying to preserve family financial resources or as a substitute for symptom management in areas that lack access to healthcare. Um, is that, is there any evidence to suggest that this is uh, occurring some one year on into the law? 
Um, yeah, so that was um, particularly interesting because um, the states that had previously legalized aid in dying, such as Oregon, Washington, and Vermont, um, were primarily white. Um, or, or there were more, um, there were fewer minorities in those states than in California, and so California was going to be very interesting because it was a much more diverse state. We also know from Oregon and Washington that um, the majority of patients who um, pursued aid in dying um, were white, well-educated um, people. And so there was a concern um, amongst um, both the conference participants as well as in general um, that maybe people who lacked um, financial resources or were not able to access good palliative care would um, feel um, that this was an option that they would pursue. And so, you know, was it ethical to provide um, this medication to hasten death without providing adequate palliative care? Um, and um Actually, there was just a report that came out in California with six months data, um, six months of uh, the, the, the first six months of uh, California's experience with aid and dying. Uh, you can actually find it online. And um, it's interesting. Mostly they were, um, again, well-educated people. Ninety percent of the people who pursued it were white, five um, percent Asian, 2.5 black and Hispanic. So I think three people um, who are black and three people who are Hispanic. And so um this um, concern hasn't borne out, um, but we don't know if that's because um, actually the flip side of um, the justice argument is, well, there are concerns about being able to access aid and dying. So again, the more empowered, well-educated um, people are the ones who are pursuing um, healthcare solutions that they feel are most in line with what they would like. Um, and so they're able to look on the internet and find things. And, um, you know, this process can be quite long. Um, and as I mentioned before, there may be challenges in finding a provider. And so um, these are people who are able to access it. So it's interesting. The data shows that there hasn't necessarily been disproportionate requests to aid in dying, but also this might reflect um, that people aren't getting the access to uh, aid and dying medications um, if they or, or knowing what their options are. So, yeah. Uh, the California End of Life Options Act passed in October of 2015 and was uh, officially available in June of 2016, as you've mentioned. Was there much concern amongst the healthcare industry about the short time frame for implementing the law? And, and uh, I suppose an extension of that is what, what problems have been uh, noticed by a short implementation time? Yeah, so um, it, it was a short implementation time, and I also think that um, because many institutions and practitioners have never had to deal with it, there was um, anxiety around that as well. Um, this is why um, we wanted to get our conference out uh, as quickly as possible after the law passed to help institutions prepare. Um, I think many institutions were even just trying to figure out, did they want to opt in or opt out? And actually, on June 9th, when the law went into effect, um, there were um, quite a few hospitals that actually didn't have policies in place. Um, our, my institution, UCSF, was um, one of the few hospitals um, that, that did have a policy in place. But even then, there were other um, sort of aspects of uh, the process that you know, we're, we were all still trying to figure out um, and learning from each other after the date of the passage. Um, for example, credentialing modules for doctors who want to prescribe um, handouts for patients, um, what drugs we were going to use and that sort of thing. Um, and so, again, it was a very organic process. Has the educating of doctors on the process of physician-assisted dying requests um, been 
given sufficient resources, both, I suppose, financially and in terms of service since the law has come into practice? Um, so actually, um, there haven't been uh, any finances uh, dedicated to um, this law. So the law was something that was passed, but there really wasn't um, much monetary or personnel support for this. So um, the response has been very individualized and um, and, and private in, in a sense. Um, so our conference, for example, was sponsored by the California Healthcare Foundation, um, and there have been other organizations that are uh, private who've also helped with education. Um, in terms of uh, education and outreach, um, that's been something that um, at my institution at UCSF, we've been doing a lot of outreach to both practitioners um, at our institution as well as outside of the institution. Um, and then, um, for example, um, we're working on a credentialing module, um, and that's something that we've been doing for UCSF, but there's actually been um, quite a bit of interest outside of UCSF, so we're trying to figure out how to um, make it and turn it into a um, continuing medical education module for people outside of UCSF, but we're having difficulty finding the funding for it. So it's it's all been very, um, uh, I guess, um, <laughs> sort of we've been all trying to figure it out um, ourselves in terms of education. So to finish, uh, I think I think that possibly leads well into this. Uh, what are the key steps that the Victorian government should be considering if they are to implement their assisted dying law? I mean, specific to impl implementation and what your experience has been in over in California. Uh, yeah. So um, I guess continuing on my last point, I think that um, it's it's important um, if it's going to be legalized that there should also be a commitment of funds um, in, to ensure that the rollout um, of this law is done ethically and that it's done in a way that um, practitioners feel comfortable um, uh comfortable um, prescribing or comfortable um, knowing how to respond to to the law. Um, I think that um, not having uh, dedicated funds or personnel um, can be problematic because, you know, a lot of it's then done um, on an individual basis um, and trying to figure out how things work um, in, a, in a relatively organic way. I think that produces both confusion for doctors and patients, um, and I think that it can also um, create uh, distress amongst practitioners who are unsure what to do, um, and and it also creates um, responses that may not be consistent. Um, and so, um, and I also think that monitoring is um, important as well. Um, and so, having the resources to um, not to say okay, it's legalized, but to monitor it um, to understand what is working and what isn't working, so that things can be improved. Um, and I also think that um, what's very important is uh, to simultaneously think about the provision of good palliative care um, in in the Victorian, um, you know, within the Victorian public health community. Um, you know, how how do we improve um, services in palliative care so that people have the options to consider um, multiple options um, at the end of life? Um, and I think uh, in the California law. Um, that is stipulated in the law that um, palliative care um, options are also um, discussed. And so I think that trying to strengthen that and using this as an opportunity to, to strengthen palliative care um, is, is something that um, I would encourage. That was Liz Zhang. We thank her very much for her time and her insights into how the California End of Life Option Act is developing over in the U.S. 
And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. We'll link off to the Roy Morgan research results, uh, as well as a link to the Victorian Parliament website where you can stream the final major hurdle of the Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill live. You get a handy little video link there. Uh, if you're on Twitter, be sure to follow DWD Vic uh, as we will be live tweeting the debate along with the team from Stop Victorian Suffering, uh, Andrew Denton's organization. Uh, you can find them at gogentle underscore Oz, uh, so be sure to look them up on Twitter. We will, of course, uh, include a link through to both Twitter pages for you, though. Until next week, bye for now.